Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join 3.8 million members and supporters working to power this nation with clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Before we dive in, I just want to let you know that we do talk about issues around mental health. So if that could be potentially triggering for you, please listen at your own discretion. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And I'm Marianne Hitt, a climate strategist living in the West Virginia Hills. And this is No Place Like Home, a podcast that gets to the heart of climate change. This season, at a time when we're experiencing so much turmoil and heartbreak, we wanted to explore and kind of redefine the concept of loss and what it means to embrace the mystery of our future together. So for our second episode in this mini season, we are honored to bring you a conversation with our friend Mary Anais Heglar. She is a climate justice writer. She's the co-founder and co-host of the Hot Take podcast and newsletter. And she is a writer who has penned some of the most powerful personal essays out there on the climate crisis in places like Vox, the Boston Globe, and Rolling Stone. And she is newly based in New Orleans. I'm so excited to share the conversation that I had with Mary Anais. She's a dear friend who just moved down to New Orleans. We're both from the Gulf Coast, and we're both just are in love with this region. And I got to meet up with her in person in New Orleans. Anna Jane, I'm so excited you have brought us this conversation with Mary Anais. She has been on No Place Like Home before. She was the season finale guest for our season about all the climate feels, where we talked about the emotional and psychological dimensions of climate change. Uh, and a lot has happened in those intervening months and years, and I'm so glad that you got to catch up with her again. I know she is a voice that a lot of people turn to when trying to navigate the overwhelming emotional, psychological, personal impacts of the climate crisis and also trying to make sense of the racial justice dimensions of the climate crisis that we're in. Yeah, she's certainly just written some of the most beautiful work on on climate grief and her own experiences with grief and depression and where she's found joy and all of that. And we get to talk a lot about that in this episode. And it was just so powerful to be in the city of New Orleans, which is, if you're not from down here, New Orleans is kind of the closest big city to where we grew up on the Gulf Coast. So in some ways, it's our home city, even though we didn't grow up there and aren't from New Orleans. You know, the place of New Orleans has just faced 
an enormous amount of loss over you know centuries um, between fires and all kinds of, of previous you know they have had two previous um, epidemics and you know of course racism and slavery and Katrina and it's just it's definitely a place that has experienced a lot of loss and is facing you know it's very much on the front lines of climate change and, and facing a lot of loss and yet it is one of the most beautiful joyful cities in the world. So we're really excited to share our love for this place and what we've learned. I asked her about growing up in the South and deciding to leave New York City after 15 years and why she decided to move back to the Gulf Coast and to New Orleans. And we are out in the city, so you will hear some of the life in the city sounds behind us during this conversation. All right, so I was born in Talladega, Alabama. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama until I was nine, and that's where the whole seat of my like extended family is. And then we moved to rural Mississippi. is like a, a oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> rural southwest Mississippi. So I grew up in Fayette, Mississippi, and Port Gibson, Mississippi, and went to boarding school in Mississippi called Piney Woods. The part of Mississippi I grew up on is like around on the Mississippi River. I just came back from going to visit my mom and there's a road here in in New Orleans that you just get on that road and you don't turn until I'm turning into my mom's driveway. With the pandemic, it was like I I started to feel unsafe being that far from my family. I started to, with the heightening of climate change too, it was just like, I want to be in the place that I love. I want to be surrounded by the scenery that I love and like be around people that I more closely identify with. And that's no shade to to New York. I think the people there are are really amazing people, but I wanted to be back in the South, and it became like the hunger and ache. And also, once I started writing again, I I needed to feel the Southern air on me again. I needed to, like, be around neighbors that I could say hello to, and they wouldn't think I was, like, some sort of freak of nature. It feels safer. The social fabric down here is a lot stronger. And in particular, the word neighbor means something very different in New Orleans than I've ever seen in my entire life. So I moved here in July, which you know because you were here. So by the time Ida came around, I'd been here like a month and a half. And the amount of people who like checked to make sure I had what I needed, the people who went to the store for me to get supplies when we thought we were going to stay for the storm, and I didn't have a car, like, I had like four or five offers for a ride out of town. Like, I haven't been here that long. I haven't met that many people. And having complete strangers stop me on the street and ask me if I had everything I needed for the storm. Here, what I've experienced has been if I lay eyes on you or my neighbor in an emergency, I'll check on you, which is really, really different and amazing. It's a place where like joy and pain don't exist on a spectrum, they exist in the same room at the same time. Like, I've always kind of noticed. The way laughter sounds in New Orleans, it sounds different. It sounds like there's something underneath it that's really, like, sorrowful and and painful. You see it in things like funeral parades. It starts very somber. It's a funeral for crying out loud. But, like, eventually it turns into celebratory atmosphere. And I think kind of need that to face horrible things. You need to be able to find joy at the same time. I think in climate work, people are always like, 
looking for hope and trying to find hope. And hope is elusive. Hope is not exactly as motivating as people think it is, but I think joy is much more, much more motivating. can mourn a loss of life and celebrate having that life in the first place at the same time. That's just something I've always noticed and admired about New Orleans. You know, you grow up in Mississippi and you kind of grow up with a crush on New Orleans. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I want to preface this with like, this is my experience and my interpretation. I am not from New Orleans. And so like, I don't intend to speak for everyone who's ever encountered this city. It's just, these are just my impressions. I love that so much. And I can really relate to it in my own way. You know, I grew up in East Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains. And now I live in West Virginia. And there is just something about the air. I don't know how else to put it. Like I step out of the car after being away. And the air on my skin makes me feel like home. And I have traveled a lot for my job. I lived in Montana for four years and it, during grad school. And uh, and I just feel like I'm more fully myself or more completely myself when I'm in the Eastern hardwood forests of Appalachia. Like I can just sort of settle into the center of myself and then go out from there to do all the things that I need to do. And I just love Marianne Issa's reflections of finding that place where you feel whole so that because all of the places we we care about are ultimately threatened by climate change, but finding a place where you feel whole and where you feel like the people are your people and in a place where you can, can have your center of gravity to do your work and do the things that matter to you. Yeah, I totally relate to that as well. I, I feel myself when I am home on the Gulf coast and I love what she had to say about joy in some ways being more motivating than hope, <laughs> like finding joy amidst the the loss and the pain and how they can coexist together. It doesn't have to be, I think we kind of fall, and by we, I mean um, the climate movement can fall into this false dichotomy between despair and hope. And that's just not an accurate way of looking at it. Like, you know, life is full of of both things and of joy and hardship. And I, I really like reframing that so that you don't have to feel somehow like you're doing it wrong if you're feeling sad or pain, but you also, you know, can find joy in the midst of of really hard things like loss. And I love just how New Orleans kind of captures that in a lot of ways. It really stares, you know, death and loss down. It doesn't shy away from it, even the way the city looks and feels like the cemeteries. If you've never been to New Orleans, the cemeteries are all above ground because um, it's below sea level. And they're like just cities of of monuments and so, you know, really honoring and celebrating the life of, of the people who are resting there. And they don't, you know, hide from that. Like when I was little, I hated cemeteries. I would look the opposite direction. I did everything I possibly could to ignore the fact that death is a part of life. And in New Orleans, they do not do that. You know, they embrace the fact that death is a part of life as a part of honoring those lives and celebrating those lives and, you know, not separating the the two very much showing the love for the people that have passed. And I, I do think that that's something we all really 
need to learn to handle better, like especially in this country where we, I think culturally, we just don't like to think about death so that when it does happen, it just completely blindsides us, even though, you know, death and change is one of the few things in life that are constant. They happen if you are a human alive on the planet or even just anything alive on the planet, death and change happen to you. And yet uh, we've, we have this enormous amount of fear around it. But I love that New Orleans doesn't do that, like culturally. And, you know, there's this new study that just came out about, you know, that attributes 5 million deaths to climate change already. We've just seen 23 new species go extinct. And, you know, of course, the pandemic has been an incredibly dark period um, for most people, probably the darkest period for most people. Um, we've just had this collective uh, experience with trauma and loss. Having lost my dad this year and being in a place where there's that, where you really, you have literally sat with and internalized the finality of death to say that you can then are going to find joy there can sort of seem ridiculous <laughs> because it's so mm -hmm. it's so painful and to say that we should find joy in death I think get at, at first blush sound kind of naive or like a Hallmark card or something and I just love how um, Marianne Ayes talks talks about that because it's something that I've been it's one of the lessons that I have taken out of my own losses this year is you're still here and there's so much joy in the simple things around you every day that I think I was, I was taking for granted and to be able to, to come through that with this renewed appreciation for just how joyful it is to be alive and be in this world and have the opportunity to be with the people that you love and make a difference. Um, it's something I brought into my climate work too, that I, that I don't just want to be, this purveyor of gloom and doom <laughs> and death and destruction with no joy in the story because I think the reason we're fighting for this world is because it brings us so much joy and to be able to hold the pain and the joy at the same time, that's a very powerful place to stand. And I think I had lost sight of that, frankly, for a while. And, and, and even though it sounds a little counterintuitive that going through a great experience of loss would would I would end up there that, you know, I, I think about centering joy in what I'm doing and sort of setting it in front of me every day now in my work. And then if I if I'm not doing that, then I take a step back and I figure out how because I think it's the it's the thing where that it, we're trying to pull ourselves toward. Um, and we have so many people of color, enslaved people, indigenous people in this country who found ways through incredible suffering and hardship and yet still brought forward this joy that still carries through all the generations. And I think we have a lot to learn. Um, I think we have a lot to learn in this time when we are facing a lot of loss and we can respond to it in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I, I asked Marianne Ayes about how she feels kind of dealing with this dance between life and death and pain and joy as she faces the very real impacts of, of climate change on the place and the people that she loves. Yeah, when I first accepted the reality of climate change, 
you know, you go through that grieving period, which we've talked about many, many times. But the thing I did to pull myself out of it was like, you know, take the time and memorize a beautiful day. Every time that you see a a gorgeous day at the beach or in a park or like feel a breeze that feels good to you, memorize it, savor it, and like meditate on the things that are beautiful because one day they won't be there. Even if they're only gone for that day, like you want to want to remember that beautiful moment and like, and I've done it for so long that now I can do it in, in the middle of a storm. I rode out Ida at your house uh, <laughs> on the Gulf Coast of Alabama while you were in California, um, which meant I was out of the hurricane zone, but I was still in a tropical depression zone. And even in the middle of that, being able to like appreciate how beautiful the rain sounded and appreciate, um, I remember the morning I left for before Ida, I left on that Saturday and the air felt really, really beautiful that morning. And I took a moment to, to memorize that feeling. And I think that's, that's a really useful skill that we need to, to savor. I love that image, that image of standing and appreciating the beautiful way that the air felt in such a moment of loss and turmoil is a very vivid just depiction of this thing I've been feeling my way towards over this past year after losing my dad. And it's not, it's not easy to do, but I think that gratitude and presence as an antidote to despair is beautifully illuminated by that story. And it's something that I have definitely been, has been carrying me through the past year. I just love the antidote to despair being present because I, I really have experienced that being down here. Like I live in absolute heaven and yet I've spent so much of the past five years being in personal turmoil and heartache and anxiety about losing this place. And in a lot of ways, I think that takes away from enjoying it and being present with it right now. Um, Not that those emotions aren't totally valid, but the thing that did most often gets me out of that mood and that place when I am feeling anger and sadness about the loss of, of my place is just like walking outside and listening to the birds and watching the sea and, you know, like it's immersing myself in the moment and the beauty. And that's what that pulls me back, the gratitude of getting to be alive and getting to experience this in the first place. And you know what? Climate brings us all so much more to the forefront, and it also makes it kind of a collective experience of of loss and uncertainty. But, you know, change and uncertainty have always been a part of human existence in a lot of ways. And I try to remind myself of that. Like, this is not a new phenomenon. It is new in that it's global, and a lot of it is caused by people, and it was preventable, and those things are new and shitty or different and shitty, but uncertainty is a part of being alive and mystery can be a really 
beautiful thing. So none of us know what the future holds and how do we live with mystery and uncertainty and even, you know, befriend it. And one of the things that comes up for both me and Marianne East living on the Gulf Coast, living on the, the front lines of climate, and also I'm sure people out West and all over the world who are dealing with different climate impacts is like, when, when do you know when to leave? Like, when, when is it time to, to pack up? And I talked to Marianne East about that. When a city is dead is subjective. So, you know, you can say that if you don't have the means to evacuate and to evacuate quickly, New Orleans is already unlivable for you. And, you know, for some people, if you can't extend extreme heat, New Orleans is already unlivable for you. It's not going to happen with one fell swoop. There's not going to be like a moment where like, bam, it's, it's over with. If you can't, you know, deal with nuisance flooding, it's already unlivable. So I think that deciding to leave a place is an extremely emotional decision. I didn't want to leave for Ida. It took a while for me to decide know, to I leave like, for Ida. Get out of there. <laughs> but everyone I knew was having that same sort of like deliberation yeah. because it's like, it's not this inanimate thing to leave. It's this like place that you love and people that you love. And do I, when things get tough, do I want to run away or do I want to stay here and help? And like, that's a complicated decision. I didn't move to New Orleans because I had no feelings about it. I moved here because I, I loved it. And so deciding to just up and leave the minute things get hard, it, it, that feels like a punk move to me. But then also, what if I wind up needing emergency services when I had the means to leave and those emergency services could be going to someone who didn't have the means to leave? Like, what do I look like now? It is like just such an emotional experience and choice and there's no right or wrong way to navigate these really hard decisions about when to stay or leave, whether or not that's a storm or whether or not that's choosing to permanently migrate because of climate change. But I do think that it's really important to point out, and Marianne spoke to, you know, you have more choices when you come from privilege, right? Like I have thought about so many times living down here when these storms come for us, like we have the privilege to be able to evacuate. A lot of people down here don't even have cars and there is no public transportation. So don't they don't even have that choice. And then, you know, if we do need to to leave, to migrate, because it just becomes too difficult to live down here, too dangerous to live down here, we can move back to Asheville or there, you know, there are other places in the world. We have family. We have a support system. That is a choice that a lot of people don't have. And it just one of the things that enrages me the most about climate change, especially down here in the Deep South, is that there's no plan at either the federal level or the state level for what to do about essentially mass migration that will happen over the next decades um, from these regions that are really imperiled. And uh, especially down here in the Deep South, there, you know, it's a very, there's a lot of very vulnerable people, and there's just no plan. And if you zoom out even farther, a lot of these mass migrations of people that we're seeing on places like our southern border in the U.S. are being driven by climate-fueled disasters like droughts that make it impossible for people to feed their families and they get to the complete end of their options and they just flee for their lives and through very dangerous journeys um, often to just end up at our border and be turned away and that problem is only going to 
escalate as the climate crisis escalates. And I think when we both fail to plan for how we're going to handle millions of climate refugees that we know, whether it's Europe or North America or elsewhere are going to, are going to be knocking on our doors, but then also fail to just address the root cause of the climate crisis in the first place. These are, these are going to be struggles that we are going to be faced with, you know, living here in West Virginia, I think, you know, I'd like to think, Oh, I live in a place that is safe. Um, I live in a place where we are, we're going to be okay. But I think over the past year, as we've seen fires in places that didn't have fires before, as we've seen incredible heat domes in places like Portland and Seattle that were not built for high temperatures, as we've seen how far the smoke's traveling, as we've seen, you know, the storms from Ida in that, that surprised people in New Jersey and took dozens of lives in places where people were just in no way prepared for that kind of flooding. There are no safe places anymore, and I hate to be the the person to say that I think, but I also hope that that I, I, I hope that that very visceral feeling of what's on the line for each one of us will motivate people to demand action from our elected officials, because I do believe that when this becomes personal and it hits home and people feel like their own safety and future is on the line, they are going to be rattling the gates in Congress um, and in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere to demand action. And I think, I know Mary Anais spoke about that with you as well. I think one of the misperceptions about like people moving for climate change is that people think like, okay, let's go where we're safe. They think that safety is just where there won't be as many natural disasters, right? So people are looking at Minnesota and and Montana and Canada and all of these places. And what they're not taking into account is the human impacts of that. So who ain't the only one moving to Minnesota, even now? But in the future, it's going to be a whole lot more people moving to Minnesota. So even if you're not having a hurricane or a fire, you have a humanitarian crisis on your hands. That's not going to be cute. And also, where do you think Minnesota's food comes from? So if everybody's living there, there's no land left to farm in Minnesota. All of the other places are like a wrap in this scenario. There is no such thing as a safe place to go or like people think Sweden is safe. It is not. And if you wanted to take your American self there to ride out the climate crisis, you late. One really interesting thing that I've found um, that speaks to why a lot of people are feeling such despair and doom about climate change is because psychologically speaking, we so hate uncertainty that it is easier and more comfortable to believe that we are doomed than to live in the uncertainty of not knowing. And it goes back to evolution. And it has to do with the fact that if we were uncertain, you know, what was around the corner or what was beyond the bushes, it could mean pain and death. It was a threat, right? Um, That uncertainty. And so what it really is, the fear of uncertainty, is a fear of pain and a fear of uh, threat or death. And one thing that's really helped me navigate this really treacherous past year and a half of loss and, and change and trauma is just kind of leaning into it, like um, not to not be afraid of the pain, <laughs> like to just be like this pain. I'm feeling pain right now. I am feeling fear right now. And that's OK. Like in life, you were going to fa- feel pain and fear. And that has helped me not 
be as afraid of it and and not be as afraid of of uncertainty. And I I really love how Joanna Macy, you know, the amazing eco-Buddhist, I would say, an activist, speaks to this kind of dance. A dance with despair became actually the most pivotal point in the landscape of my life. To see how we are called to not run from the discomfort and not run from the grief or the feelings of outrage or even fear. If we can be fearless to be with our pain, it turns. It doesn't stay static. It only doesn't change if we refuse to look at it. But when we look at it, when we take it in our hands, when we can just be with it and keep breathing, then it turns. It turns to reveal its other face. And the other face of our pain for the world is our love for the world, our absolutely inseparable connectedness with all life. Jane, that is a beautiful quote. And I will tell you, I have been trying to do that over the past year with all the loss in my life. And, you know, one of the reasons we don't want to feel pain is because it's painful. And I can imagine people listening to this and thinking, um, no, thank you. (laughs) There's a reason that I don't want to, like, face the loss of climate change and that I don't want to dwell in this because pain is painful and I don't want to experience it and feel it. And in the, the, my past year, I found that if I, if I kept trying to avoid it, which I mean, just going to be real. Like sometimes I did, sometimes I just felt like, you know what, this is all too much. And I just am going to go distract myself because this is too much for me right now. But, but, but I tried my best to do what she's suggesting in the quote and just sit with it and realizing it's not going to destroy you. And that there's the other side of it is, is love that the reason we feel so much grief is because we felt so much love. And I feel like that about our climate, that the grief people are feeling about what we, what is at stake here and what we might lose. The other side of that grief is love. And that love is a very powerful place to connect yourself with why you're doing this work and a powerful way to sustain yourself when you might feel it's hopeless or or all is lost because when it's that powerful of of love that's driving you 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 won't ever give up um and and that's you know i i refuse to admit defeat in the fight for our climate (laughs) i'm gonna keep at this with till my last breath and i feel like it's because it's rooted in that love that is is on the other side of that grief. Yeah, Marianne, it's so profound and and so true. When you dig un- to see what's underneath all of the the pain and the grief and the anger, it's it's love for this world and for each other. And Marianne Ice also had some really amazing, thoughtful things to say about that. I mean, I think what I learned is to not try to predict the future. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And it's like, I, th- I think we really struggle with that when it comes to climate change. People like, one of the questions I get most often is some version of, do you think we're going to win? And it's always like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think that question is premature because have we really tried yet? Yeah. And if we haven't really tried, do we get to ask if we're going to win? Whether or not we win is less important than who do you want to be right now? And that shouldn't change. Win or lose, that shouldn't change. 
I think one of the reasons we're afraid of change is because we don't know if we're going to be able to face it. You know, we evolved to need one another. We're pack animals, no matter how you look at it. But we've been put in systems in which we have to act as, as individuals and as lone wolves. It was extremely isolating position to be in. And also, like, are isolated that way. You can't meet all your needs by yourself. We're not supposed to be able to meet all our needs by ourselves. And so, like, now you're changing my circumstances. I really don't know if I'm going to be able to feed and clothe myself and find shelter and all of the things. Like, I really think that's why change is so, so terrifying. Yeah, I think that's such a critical point and goes back to what we talked about with Amy in our last episode. Like, we can't do this alone. We didn't evolve to do this alone. Like, we are interdependent creatures. We depend on the earth and the ecosystem and all parts of life, and we depend on each other. You know, if there's one way we're going to get through all of this upheaval, it's by remembering that, you know, and how we build our lives and build the systems that sustain us. And I do think one of the big hurdles to climate action, really, is that people in power are are very comfortable. And that includes, I mean, I'm including myself in that in a lot of ways. Like that, that's not just like the 1% and the people running our government and big corporations. It is definitely them. But it's also a lot of middle class, you know, Americans. And oftentimes, more so than other communities, it's oftentimes white people. And it's that sense of, of comfort that has allowed us to be so complacent when it comes to the necessary change that is required of, of us in this moment. That sense of security has actually been a really destructive force in this country. It has. And, you know, my uh, over the years, my Black colleagues, other other folks of color that I've worked with have very generously pointed out <laughs> to you know, that when we white people start wringing our hands about the existential threat of climate change, that this is not the, the first existential crisis that their communities have faced. And we have been very comfortable as white people. And as much as I talked earlier about, you know, love being a, a big motivator to fight through loss and despair, for a lot of these folks, a lot of these communities, it's been survival. It's been necessity. This is not the first existential threat that they have faced. And I think that as a white person, I've definitely needed to develop a little more humility around that and really try to listen more for the wisdom and the lessons from people who have been through existential threats before, slavery, colonialism, and through the generations have found the strength and the courage to go on and to keep fighting even in the midst of such great loss and despair. And I know Mary and I shared some of that wisdom with you. Well, I'll say that first, I think, you know, white supremacy is, well, the predecessor to a climate crisis and a contemporary. You know, we are still surviving those yeah. existential threats because they're still here. People have fought for their lives before. They didn't do it because they were hopeful. You know, like I remember talking to mom, my mom about, um, she was a kid when, when Emmett Till was killed. And that wasn't hidden from her. That wasn't, you know, nobody sweet talked that. And I was like, how are you not scared? Because you're like eight when this happens. And she was like, it didn't scare you. It made you angry. It made you want to go fight. 
I think about that in the way we think about climate change because like you have to give people hope and like that's bullshit. You can't give someone hope. Hope has to be earned. And I don't think people like poured into the streets because like we're hopeful. Like no, they poured into the streets because some of them were probably scared, but a lot of them were really, really, really angry. And because nobody hid the urgency from them. And like there's also this idea in in climate discourse that this is an argument about reason and data. And if we just like prove the existence of climate change, well, then of course people will people will stop making the crisis and people will start, you know, trying to solve it. And that's not necessarily true. Not everybody gives a fuck about your life. And I think that's a, something that, that black people know. That's something that people of color know that like just because something's hurting you doesn't mean that people are going to stop it. Only white guys can think that. And white guys have dominated climate discourse for way, way, way too long. And I think that um, in 2019, it became really clear, like, we can't trust you with solving this problem anymore. Because if you were going to solve it, you would have been solved it. I wouldn't be reading about, you know, entire towns wiped out by fires if y'all had the solutions. So it's time to, like, make other room. And I, I heard in climate discourse all the time that, like, our ancestors did this and be a better ancestor than your ancestors. And it's like, fuck you, don't talk about my grandfather that way. Like, my grandfather was like, you know, putting his life on the line in the civil rights movement. Like, my ancestors didn't do this. Your ancestors did. I want to be as good as my ancestors I feel weird talking to my mom about the climate crisis because she's already fought a really hard battle. And it's not her fault. And, you know, they tried really hard to make a different world for their children. And now, boom, climate change. I was listening to a podcast about the St. Louis massacre of 1919, which was uh, very similar to the Tulsa race massacre, where um, the black population of St. Louis was this mass lynching and people were like for their lives and neighborhoods were burned and people were crossing the river into East St. Louis, which was like right across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. And the people in East St. Louis didn't know what was happening. So they heard the noise and they thought it was a natural disaster. And that immediately made me think of climate change. Yeah, on this topic of change, I, I've been thinking a lot about how in evolution, it's not the strongest who survive. It's the people who adapt that survive. It's the people and species that change and adapt to new circumstances that make it. And I, lo- I love Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. Mariana does too. And one of my favorite quotes in the whole world is God is change, which is one of the major themes that runs throughout Parable of the Sower. And it just so speaks to, I don't know, I think there's some sort of beauty or divinity in change. And as I learn to become more comfortable with it, I I feel more and more of that way. There's a courage and that you learn from becoming comfortable with change and uncertainty. And you know one thing that I I hope people will will not hear in that I do not hear in that like fatalism, you know, that climate mm-hmm. is changing, God has changed, so therefore we just surrender to change, which I I know is not what you mean. <laughs> um and it's definitely not what I hear in it, but I can imagine other people hearing that and I think what I the the very deep wisdom that I hear in that is that 
God is change. The universal constant, the divine nature of this world we're in is change. And so rather than refusing to see the changes that are happening around us, to become as deeply and intimately attuned to those changes as you can, and as happens in the parable of the sower, to try to use those forces of change to try to build a better world, to sort of align yourself with the the forces of life and the forces of change that are, you know, have the potential for healing and have the potential for creating something new and have the potential for building better systems that's, that actually serve people. So that it's, it's not surrendering to change and sitting on the sidelines. It's no longer sort of white knuckling this and, and being so angry about the change that you lose your ability to work with it. And I think that that is right now as the climate is changing all around us, as we're experiencing the grief of the loss of seasons and places and things that we thought were permanent and forever to find a way to work within that, to be present and to build a better world. I think that is a profound challenge but I think it's also an invitation for us all in this moment. I think we're all in the syndrome of climate grief. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. It's a syndrome. It's not a cycle because cycles end usually. Mm -hmm. The way we think of grief is that like you go through these phases and this linear sort of path and then you get to acceptance. And the thing about climate grief is that there is no acceptance because one, this is unacceptable. Two, you're still alive. You're still on this planet. Like you can't mourn something that hasn't fully ended. And so you kind of cycle through grief over and over and over again. So like I go into bargaining, I go into anger, I go into de depression all the time. Like I cycle in and out, in and out, in and out. And the way that I cope with that is to realize that I, that those are good things. That means I have not accepted the unacceptable. That means that I have not become a sociopath. Like, it's not supposed to feel good to live through this. You're not supposed to be able to, like, watch fires like that and earthquakes and watch that many people suffer and feel good. There's no such thing as feeling good right now unless you've, like, legit become a psychopath, and I don't want to do that. So when I feel bad, I feel good about feeling bad. I think that, like... New Orleans exists in its people as much as it exists in its like, physical manifestation as a city. People in Louisiana do not like the term resilient. I have a problem with the term resilient. Um, so I'm not going to use that word, but they ain't going nowhere. <laughs> like, they're, they're going they're, to adapt. That is a spirit <laughs> yeah. that will absolutely endure. And I don't mean just as a spirit, but as an embodiment. Like It's something that you, you pass down to your children it's something that you inspire in other people so like i don't i don't think new orleans as a concept is ever going to go away and i don't want it to I love that sentiment of uh, we are going to hold on to the spirit of, of 
these places that are a part of us, no matter what happens, that you can't take that away from us, you know? And there is a, not only a courage, but a power in that. So I, I'm so grateful to, to Mariana East for, for telling us her story and her experience over the past year, year and a half in her new journey in New Orleans and all of the incredible wisdom that she brings to, to us and our podcast, um, but also to this, this whole movement and this whole world. So thank you, Mariana East. Yes, thank you. Your voice is a balm and it is a source of strength for a lot of us. So thank you for being willing to share it. And Anna Jane, we've got one more episode here in our mini season about lessons from loss. And I am looking forward to continuing this conversation with you. And I certainly have gotten a lot of strength and wisdom out of this conversation. So thanks to you both. And thank you for making me feel vicariously like I was in New Orleans for a while, one of my favorite cities as well. (laughs) Yes, I can't wait once this pandemic wraps up a little bit more when you can come and visit and we can go to New Orleans in real life. But thank you for going on this journey with me. We will will make that happen. And it has been my pleasure. See you soon. Thank you to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. This episode was produced by the folks at Quantum Spin Studios. Our theme music was provided by the amazing band River Wireless, and we are distributed by Critical Frequency. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there, which will help more people find the show. And join the conversation between episodes by following us on Twitter at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there's no place like home.